0: So we're in the minefield, we're backing up. We ordered the helicopter to spin up on deck to look for us. Initially, Captain Renner and I were standing on the bridge wing of the ship. We thought that the helicopter crashed because the fireball went about two, 300 feet in the air and we went flying. Everything on the ship just went into the air and the fireball had blown burning debris all over the ship topside. It broke the ship's keel. It instantly flooded two main engineering spaces, and we're on fire, the sun's setting, and we have no power. (laughs) We're still in the minefield. We still have three mines we can see. We hit one we couldn't, and we're fighting for
1: our lives. Think about that for a second. Fighting for your life. If we're lucky, the majority of us will never have to actually fight for our lives. I suppose it could certainly feel that way at times, but what if it's truly the case when it really is the difference between life and death? I remember my
0: captain saying, we're going to save her, we're going to fix her, and we're going to fight her again. And that's when I knew we're fighting.
1: When the outcome depends entirely on how you react, the decisions you make, and how quickly you can respond, will you abandon ship, or will you fight for what's worth saving? What's going on everybody? I'm Nate Ledger, and I want to welcome you back to another episode of Changing Course. Today's story piqued my interest a while ago. I was at the Police Academy, the Maine Criminal Justice Academy, and a cadet in my class had introduced me to his father. It was none other than Master Chief Danny
0: Nicholson. My name is Danny Nicholson, born in Reading, Massachusetts. Joined the Navy uh, my junior year of high school, so in 1982 I went active duty. I thought it was the right thing to do as a young man in America. Served the country. that was following my father's
1: footsteps. I really didn't know what I was going to get myself into. And as I got to learn about his service in the Navy and his various achievements, I started to hear a few rumors about his time on board the USS Samuel B. Roberts. It was a Navy frigate that struck a sea mine in the Persian Gulf. Now, to be honest, I had to do a little bit of history homework on this. The event took place in 1988. I was only a few months old. President Ronald Reagan was in the White House and Iran and Iraq were at war. And as that conflict escalated, it moved from a land war to a sea war. It was referred to as the tanker war. And when the United States got involved, they created a mission dubbed Operation Earnest Will. And this mission involved escorting Kuwaiti oil tankers in and out of the Persian Gulf. It took reading a book titled No Higher Honor, Saving the USS Samuel B. Roberts in the Persian Gulf by Bradley Peniston to really understand what the crew of the Roberts experienced. The book tells an epic tale of the ship's journey, and I thought it was so fitting, a literal changing course that altered the lives of 215 souls on board that small but forever mighty warship. I had the pleasure of sitting down with the Master Chief at a VFW in Portland, Maine. It was post number 6859, and I'm so gracious for them allowing us to, to set up and hold the interview in their space. And I gotta be honest, it wasn't exactly a studio environment. The sounds of veterans coming and going and the door opening and the laughter in the background, I think it adds to the experience in my opinion. I saw most people stopping at the bar and pulling up a stool and I caught a few people eavesdropping on the conversation. A story about how you can hit a mine, rip open the bottom of the ship, and walk away alive is something to pay attention to.
0: The 87 deployment was my second deployment to the Persian Gulf. My first ship was the USS John King, Adams-class destroyer. So in 1983, 84, I did a six-month deployment to the Persian Gulf, uh, same place as the Roberts.
1: So not my first go-around. In the early months of 1988, Operation Ernest Will was in full swing. It was the largest convoy operation since World War II. For two months, the crew of the USS Roberts handled convoys, patrols, and a rescue at sea. Iraq and Iran were at war, and
0: their go-to thing was bombing or hitting ships, transiting the Straits of Hamuz and the Persian Gulf with missiles and rockets, and just destroying and interfering with the, the shipping lanes. So in 1986, President Reagan started a campaign where the U- United States was going to escort Kuwaiti tankers. So we re-flagged Kuwaiti tankers with the American flag and we started convoys from the Straits of Hormuz in the Indian Ocean up to Kuwait. Um, So we we provided them safe passage uh, so they wouldn't get attacked by Iran and Iraq. We'd take, you know, five, six, eight ships um, and we'd just circle them and, you know, we were harassed constantly by by Iran. Um, Earlier in 1986, Iraq actually fired two, two missiles at the USS Stark um, and killed 37 United States Navy sailors. So, you know, the, when we got over there, it was very heightened. We were on our, our best game. We were on a ship that
1: we knew was the best in the United States Navy. And where was the best ship in the U.S. Navy built? None other than Bath Ironworks right here in Maine. Bath built, best built. So the
0: crew we assembled up here in Bath, in Brunswick, Maine. We took it down to Gitmo, Guantanamo Bay, Cuba for, uh, we have a base down there for just workups and, and practicing how to fight the ship, how to fight fires, fight flooding. We got the highest score they've ever had uh, for our final problem down in Gitmo. And then we come back to Portland, Maine. And we spent six months working out the warranty items on the ship, and then we eventually deploy. Uh, the first deployment of the ship was to you know the Persian Gulf Fifth Fleet. We we hated it. Long hours, a um, lot of work, but we were good. We knew it, and the crew was extremely, extremely tight knit, and we you know we knew how to operate and fight the ship. I actually wasn't supposed to go to the Samuel B. Roberts. I had orders to USS Kaufman, which was FFG 59, and they were shorthanded. So they pulled me off and they sent me to the Roberts. So I kind of fate for me being on board that ship. So like any other day, we, we a couple days beforehand, we picked up a convoy of refly Kuwaiti tankers in the uh, Indian Ocean, but I think we had six or eight tankers and we're gonna escort them. It's a couple
1: day transit. Through the Straits of Hammuz. that's where we typically get harassed by Iran. The Samuel B. Roberts, mustering 215 souls and displacing 4,712.25 gross tons, was ready to go to war. We've had numerous occasions that going to general quarters, Iran coming
0: at us with high-speed boats called bog hammers. Mm-hmm. And we'd put a missile on the rail, go to general quarters, and we'd fend them off pretty aggressive ship handling by my captain, Paul rent and we we were good. They they calmed down and things got a little bit quiet. So when you transit in the Persian Gulf, you, you don't just drive through the major shipping lanes. We, we are on set routes called Q routes. They're mineswept channels, and they change. So that's how we play the game. You know, we send minesweepers ahead, and they'll clear shipping routes for us, and we follow the zigzag through you know, open international waters, and then every so often we'll change that so they can't get used to what we're doing. We've trained hard for the mission, so we're mission-focused on protecting American interests, and that's, that's what you do. You come together as a team, and this ship, more than any other I've been on, we were focused on the mission. So our mission was to get these tankers up to Kuwait yep. without taking a, a missile hit from Iran or Iraq. Yep.
1: And that day they did just that. There were no missiles. There was no drama. The mission was complete. It's always a good
0: thing. It's, we finish the mission, you take a deep breath, you know, might have a cookout on the ship. But
1: at this point the ship was low on food, it was low on fuel, and there was an oiler not too far away where they could restock and replenish the ship.
0: The military likes to keep our fuel levels above a certain percentage. So they tasked us to follow the route we were on and make best speed to rendezvous with an oiler so that's where we were going
1: in the book it says for the moment there were no tankers to herd no armed raiders to ward off in this calm central region of the gulf there was a time to enjoy a moment's calm and a cooling breeze that bellied the 87 degree air what we didn't
0: know is when we had passed through with the the initial convoy and
1: went up to kuwait iran had come out and laid a minefield um, on our track. Danny was the ship's quartermaster of the watch, the navigator on the bridge, telling the ship where to go and when to turn. The work is incredibly detailed. It's trying to tightrope an invisible line in the middle of the Persian Gulf. You have to plot out your course on a chart, continuously taking your position on the water, and if you can imagine, a ship is constantly moving. The sea conditions and the weather and the winds pushing on the side of the boat and there are minefields all around, it's pretty nerve wracking. So they, they figured it out. Um, they laid about
0: 20 something mines. And so here we come back after completing the mission and we run right into an Iranian minefield. We're in the middle of the Gulf. We're doing 28, 30 knots. And we had a turn. So we uh, took a range bearing. So we use radar off a of, uh, oil platform. We measure the distance. To the turn, so it's a precision turn. We make the turn, and the forward lookout, uh, Bobby Gibson, young twenty-year-old kid, says, "I see something in the water in front of us." So I'm on watch on the bridge, and I walk out in the bridge wing. So we come, we stop the engines, so everything's slowing down. Captain ran up to the bridge. We could see three floating mines in front of the ship, uh, hundred and fifty yards or so. So. Things happened real quick after that. Ship went to General Quarters. That's where you're batting down all the hatches, the watertight doors to control flooding. People, manned the fire stations. This is real, big time.
1: It's been said, the best way out of a minefield is to back out of it.
0: So we're in the minefield, but we're still looking at the three mines in front of us. We're backing up. We ordered the helicopter to spin up on deck yep. to, to look for us. And as we back up, we weren't pushing the water down when we were going fast, and we're in our wake. And, and some
1: of the people down in the engine rooms heard the scraping on the bottom of the ship. What they were hearing, scraping the bottom of the ship, was an Iranian mo 8 mine. The, the things you see in pictures,
0: big round ball with the spikes. I forget how many pounds of TNT, but it's a, it's a big shaped charge. So when the ship impacts it, it's a contact mine pushes in one of those spikes, and it sets the charge off, and boom. Instantly blew a 20-foot hole in the bottom of the ship. Captain Ren and I were standing on the bridge wing of the ship. We thought the helicopter crashed because <clears throat> the fireball went about two, 300 feet in the air, and we went flying. Everything on the bridge of the ship, everything on the ship just went into the air. The fireball had blown burning debris all over the ship, um, topside. Captain Wren and I were tumbling up on the bridge wing. Yep. We landed. We initially announced that the helicopter had crashed until you could look at one of the cameras and you could see the helicopter still spinning on the fantail. And that's when we realized we, we struck a mine. And then it became a fight for survival. It broke the ship's keel. It instantly flooded two main engineering spaces and broke the shaft seals and bulkhead to the third. We split in half. So the only thing holding the ship together is the main deck, which is, it's tearing. And we're on fire, the sun's setting, and we have no power. (laughs) We're still in the minefield. We still have three mines we can see. We hit one we couldn't. And we're, we're fighting for our lives. I can remember the task force commander asking my captain the damage is severe. What are your thoughts on abandoning the ship? You have permission to abandon ship. And I remember my captain saying, and I'll never forget this. He said, we're going to save her. We're going to fix her. And we're going to fight her again. And that's when I knew we're fighting.
1: Each vessel, each ship, when it's built has watertight compartments. It's a bulkhead that goes from the bottom of the boat all the way to the top to the main deck. And it's supposed to break down the ship into watertight compartments. And when you design a ship, you can design it in such a way that you could flood an entire watertight compartment, sometimes two, sometimes three, and the vessel will still float on the water. And the Roberts was a multiple compartment ship. It was said that the Roberts could fill three of those watertight compartments and still stay afloat. But the keel commonly referred to as the backbone of a vessel if you break the keel of a ship you're supposed to sink and at this point the ship had doubled its tonnage from taking on all that water through the massive hole that was blown in the bottom of the ship the water had filled the main engine rooms and two of those three compartments had flooded and they were quickly losing the third and that's where the crew's training came
0: in because the third engineering space had cracked bulkheads a team of sailors went in there, about seven or eight of them, and they they were taking mattresses, their shirts, yep. and plugging cracks using shoring, which is all stuff we learned while we were in, in Gitmo. And if we had lost AMR-3, that third engineering space, we would have sank instantly. I was a firefighter, yep. so I, I was on the nozzle of, putting water down the stack. We had just flames pouring out of the ship's smokestack. So we are docked, we are dead. You know, one of the sailors, he jumped on top of a generator and and started it uh, with a suicide switch. He's in the enclosure, and, and yeah. he, he could have been killed in there, but he did what he had to do. Yeah. And we eventually got power back to the ship, so we were able to start a couple of fire
1: pumps um, and start the dewatering. 10 minutes. No power, most of the ship below deck was in total darkness.
0: We didn't have radios back then in 1988. So it's, it's relaying word of mouth, which we practice. And then we have sound powered phones, which <clears throat> you know, circuits are broken, but the Navy has alternate circuits. So we figured out all the backups. We got the communication going. And pretty much in the beginning of it, while I'm fighting fires topside, um, there's ten guys going into a, a flooded space with water up to their chest, plugging bulkheads. You know, those ten people that were severely hurt. I mean, the skin burnt off them um, trying to escape from the engine room. We had we had one sailor, our chief, um, Alex Prez, trapped underneath the deck grate. So he's in the space that flooded. He floated to the top and there's a grate above his head in a burning space so he's breathing through it with a broken back and we had we had other shipmates enter that space and use firefighting lanterns to shine a light so he could swim under the oil burning water and they pulled him out and he survived we fought at least six hours fighting fires we finally got the fires out it was it was trapped inside a, a plenum they call it a plenum chamber we finally got access to it it took us hours and hours. The fire is next to our, our 76 millimeter magazine, which has all our gunpowder and, and bullets in it. So that space got to a critical temperature where we had to you know, throw a whole bunch of people on that to, to empty magazine before it exploded. That would have ended it, the night. So we got the magazine emptied. A lot of rounds went over the side. A lot of them went up onto the forecastle of the ship. We cabled the ship together because we were splitting in half and sinking. We literally wrapped cable around you those know, firm structures and, and tightened it down so we didn't split in half and sink. It wasn't until the morning. Once we got power back, we had an auxiliary motor. We were able to lower it and make it about 21 miles out of there on our own power. Through the middle of the night, still in the minefield, everyone that wasn't fighting a casualty was a lookout, looking in the water for other mines. If we had hit another one, we were all dead. We had ships coming in after we got hit, you know, other American warships coming in, and we had to tell them, stop, we're in a minefield. And you can see him turning around. We had helos come in and take the wounded off. Our corpsman, who's our ship's doctor, he's an enlisted person, Jim Lambert. Lambert, he he was the hero. He saved lives. It's it's amazing what the crew went through that night. There's story after story of heroics. We we should have died, but when when you come right down to it, we fought and survived.
1: Two hundred and fifteen souls survived that day. We made it through the
0: night. The last deck log entry was observe sunrise, and that was when we finally, you know. About 12 hours later, we we had a sense of we might survive, but you still couldn't go below decks because I mean there were, the spaces were flooded. So everyone's topside. We had a, a helicopter come in from the USS Wainwright, brought us breakfast because <laughs> we had nothing. Everything's gone. So eventually, the one of the tugs that is one of the minesweepers came out and and we rigged a tow <clears throat> and they towed us into the United Arab Emirates. We made it into Dubai in the UAE. Pier side, we still there's still a chance we're going to sink. And, and they, they rigged some massive floats and, and just to hold the back of the ship up until a couple of days later we went into dry dock. And then uh, a ship called the Mighty Servant 2, a heavy lift ship, the, the government contracted it, it. It picked our ship up out of the water and brought it back to... Newport, Rhode Island, for our homecoming, heroes' homecoming. And we eventually get towed back up to Portland, Maine, right here. And they spent about two years in Portland
1: uh, getting getting repaired. As soon as she was repaired, take a guess at where they sent her.
0: First deployment, she went back to the Persian Gulf, flying the biggest American flag we could find. And she was decommissioned uh, about 2017 after 28 plus years of service. We're a family, we're very tight. We, we still do a lot of reunions, we, we get together. We meet every year on the 14th of April and drink some beer. And you know, the stories get bigger sometimes as we get older. Some people exaggerate some stuff. You know, you take everyone from everywhere and you put them in, a, you know, a 400 foot ship and you live together, you sleep together, you eat together. There is no black, white, red, yellow. It is, we're American sailors. And it gets so tight, you're not just a sailor anymore. You're a shipmate. You're a crewmate on the USS Assembly Roberts, and We're the best ship in the Navy. And that's the attitude that builds the fighting spirit, I think, of of the American warriors, is we have that camaraderie. Everyone on board the ship earned the combat action ribbon. Now I work for for the government again, and I'm working up, in Bath Iron Works with the pre-commissioned sailors, just like I was uh, 35 years ago. When I tell these sailors, I, I tell them, "Hey, I was here. I was in this building as a young second class, and I left here, and we we were in the fight. So you need to prepare yourself." And I talk to every crew that comes through Bath Iron Works. You need to be prepared because when you sail down the Kennebec River, things can get real at any time. But when you are putting in a life and death situation, that training kicks in. And I think it's the reason I'm sitting here today is because we were that well-trained and
1: ready to go to war and protect our nation's interests. Throughout my conversation with the Master Chief, he kept saying, we were in the fight. And as I mentioned at the top of the episode, most of us will never have to be in that kind of fight. Thank God. But that's not to say life isn't a battle. And I know I risk sounding redundant here as the theme is obviously a prominent one, but I can't stress it enough, what it means to stay in the fight, and what it means to react with poise, what it means to act with compassion and empathy, and to stand up to adversity, especially when it blows a 20-foot hole in the bottom of your steel picnic. Whatever you may be neck deep in at this very moment, there is always an opportunity to try like hell to keep your head above water, even when it's rushing in faster than it ever has before. Stay in it, because with the right mindset and preparation, you can navigate through it, even if it means backing out and starting all over again. I want to thank and express my heartfelt gratitude to all the men and women who have served or are currently serving our country. Their sacrifice and dedication deserve our utmost respect and appreciation. I also want to thank the members of the VFW and the command staff for allowing us to record in their post. The VFW, along with all other veteran organizations, play a crucial role in supporting our veterans and their families, providing essential services and resources to everyone who has served. Many of these organizations rely on donations and volunteers to continue this important work. If you're able, you should consider donating or volunteering your time. If you're enjoying the podcast, please consider supporting us. The contributions go to the overall production costs and allow us to keep bringing you new stories. Every donation, no matter the amount, makes a huge difference and is greatly appreciated. Also, if you have a story you think we should know, reach out to us. We want to hear it. The of Course Podcast is written and produced by Nathan Tower at Nonsensible Productions. Sound design and mixing by Kevin Shinstock at Groundswell. And Molly Nicholson manages all of our socials. I'm Nate Ledger. I want to thank you for listening. Later. And this seems minuscule, but there's also sea snakes in this area of the Persian Gulf. I'm like, oh, thanks. Not only do we hit a mine, but bring in the sea snakes.